0: If you were God for a week, what would you do? Tom would make somebody else God because he'd be pretty rubbish at it. Yep, I can't disagree with that. <laughs> yeah, you, Darren would send Jesus back. Yep. Why would you do that? Okay. <laughs> Okay, yeah, yeah, yep, reinforce it, reiterate the message, yeah, cool. What else would you do? What would you do if you were God for a week you'd get you'd you'd get omnipotence, you'd be all powerful, you'd be God, man. How could you know what you're gonna do if you know more than you know now, yep, yep. Let's not overthink that, but yes, that's a really good point, Tom. I know, I mean, it's that's right, hey? What would you do? Which says, it's interesting, most of us are very quick to think of things we do, which assumes that a certain level of arrogance that we know what we know better than God, yeah? What else might we do? Make all the children safe. Yeah. And isn't that a subcategory of the general end the suffering in the world? Actually, this morning uh, at the 10 a.m. service, we had a couple who's, you know, we won't name them, Richard and Fiona Arkell, um, who, <laughs> where Fiona said, oh, I'd end the refugee crisis. And Richard said, I'd make beer free. So, um, <laughs> I thought that was pretty good, really. You know, it shows who's the spiritual leader in their family. And uh, Richard's doing a fine job right there. Um, But every time I ask people this question, it doesn't take long for someone to come up with the idea that what we'd do is we'd end the suffering. Wouldn't you want to do that? Just put an end to it all. Now, uh, of course, the, the problem with that is the problem Tom highlighted. And the, the problem is that implicit in that answer is the sense that God currently isn't doing a very good job of putting an end to the suffering. And if only we could be God, we'd do a much better job, right? Because it's quite clear that we've got to put an end to the suffering and that should happen. And and we just do it, right? But well, yes, that's right. And I think if you've If if you thought that and you go, yep, make the children safe, solve the refugee crisis, put an end to suffering, those are really good things to want to do. But I want to suggest this evening that God is actually doing the very best job he can to do exactly that, given his nature and the way he's created the world. Shall I say that again? God is doing the very best job he can, given his nature and the nature of the world that he has created. Let's, let's think about this a little for a moment. Um, God, uh, God has created a world which he loves very, 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 very much. And he's put us in it whom he loves extraordinarily. So because of his great love for us, that rules out one way to solve the problem of evil, doesn't it? You see, what is the easiest way to stop the suffering in the world? Start again uh, to end the world to eradicate all people because isn't it true that the vast majority of suffering in the world is actually the result of human uh, actions and agency? People are the ones who cause the vast majority of the suffering. So, one answer could be let's just pull the plug, start again, end it all. And, in fact, At the 10 a.m. service, and maybe it said something about their stage of life. That was the most common answer. What would I do? I'd end it all. I'm like, wow, it's a a little depressing. Um, But I think it's because people are aware there's so much suffering in the world, and it seems hopeless. So one answer, end it. But God doesn't want to do that. Why? Because He loves us. He loves us enormously. Then God has another problem, though. Not only does He love us enormously... But he takes our free will, our capacity to choose, with the utmost seriousness. So God could override our will and make us all robots who never hurt anybody else. We could be like fully autonomous vehicles who are completely programmed never to inflict pain on anyone else, right? <laughs> But actually, God doesn't want that because the way He's made us and the way He's made the world is that He takes your capacity to choose, to exercise will, as as of the utmost significance because it's fundamental to who we are. So now, God can't override our will directly. He chooses not to do that. And He can't destroy us because He loves us. So what's He going to do? It's a big problem, right? It's a big problem because we are loved... And he gives us freedom, but we are really a mess. We choose to do awful things with this freedom. And so the problems of the world are very deep, and the problems are very deep within us. So what are you going to do with that? I was reading uh, this morning an article in the Atlantic magazine. Uh, This was an interview with a woman who uh, is part of, there's a whole industry of people who filter content for Uh, social media sites, Facebook, Snap, Instagram, and so forth. And she just organized a big conference, they interviewed her, and she started off working in MySpace, which was an original, um, you know, now only appears in ironic references in movies and so on. But it was the original social media platform, and she says this, when I left MySpace, I didn't, and her whole job was you know eight ten hours a day reading people's unfiltered stuff that they were going to post and deciding what could go on and what couldn't. She said I didn't shake hands for like three years because I figured out that people were disgusting, and I just could not touch people. About uh, and this woman said most normal people in the world are just effing weirdos. I was disgusted by humanity when I left there. So many of my peers, same thing. We all left with horrible views of humanity. Uh, when I asked her if she'd recovered any sense of faith in humanity a decade on, Barden said no, but I'm able to pretend that I have faith in humanity, that I, and that will have to do. It's okay. Once you accept the basic grossness of humans, it's easier to remember to avoid touching anything. Isn't that... I mean, ah... That's someone who has seen the unfiltered thoughts of people just dumped online. When you see what gets through onto the online space, uh, that's disturbing enough. Imagine all the stuff that these thousands of people around the world go, no, we don't want to post that. The problem God has, and the problem you and I have, is our grossness, right? Like, and the grossness is not just in other people. It's in us. So uh, at 9 o'clock, the 9 o'clock service where we talked about this, one of the first things people said, uh, said, what would, you, what would you do if you were God? F- the hands went up. I would smite people. <laughs> there was a lot of talk about smiting people uh, at 9 o'clock. I thought, wow, whew, get up early and get the smiting on here. Uh, and that's because... They just realize, as we all do, the grossness in the world resides in human hearts and the appropriate response is just a whole bunch of smiting. But of course, if everyone was smitten, who was gross, there'd be no one alive, would there? A a Russian author, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, made this point. Writing in the Russian Gulag, he said, the line between good and evil doesn't lie between people, or between cultures, or between nation-states, but runs right through the middle of every human heart. So we're all good, glorious, wonderful, but we're also evil. We're gross. So what's God going to do about it? I mean, one response is to um, not touch anyone or anything, right? <laughs> like this lady. Once you see what it's like, and, and imagine what that would be like for God. Because um, not... God isn't just looking through what we post on social media, but imagine like if if the claims about the Bible are true of God, He knows everything about each of us all the time. Like there's not a single little bit of grossness in the world that is not at the forefront of God's mind, apart from the stuff He chooses to forget. Isn't that an extraordinary thought? So, so what is God going to do with that? How is God going to heal the world? How is God, a God going to both love us and deal with all the, the evil and injustice and the grossness of the world? Well, we're doing this little series on the names of Jesus. And tonight we're going to look at the name of Jesus that gives us a clue. And in fact, more than a clue tells us how God deals with this. We're going to look at Jesus as the Son of Man. And the very first thing point to make is that title, "Son of Man," is uh, is the title that Jesus uses for himself, and the gospel writers use for Jesus more than any other title. And it's significant in a few ways. The first point is this: The claim of the Bible is and the claim of the gospel writers is that this man, Jesus, is nothing other than God who has come into our humanity with with the fullness of the human experience. So Son of Man is his favorite title because it says, I'm here as a full human. I'm not some superhero just pretending to have a human experience. He's the son of Adam. He's earthy. He's human. He's fully in every single way the same as us. And the first critical point that makes is that in God's plan to deal with our grossness, He's happy to touch us. And in fact, more than touch us, He's happy to come into our world and fully embrace everything that it means to be human. Everything. Which is extraordinary, right? When the natural human response to to evil and injustice, is to step back. God says, no, I'm going to step into that, and I'm going to come, and I'm going to do something about this from the inside. He doesn't pull the plug. He's going to heal it and restore everything that's gone wrong. So that's what the Son of Man means in the first instance. But Jesus, as the Son of Man, comes to do three things. He comes firstly, as we see in this passage in Mark 2. He comes, and as the Son of Man, He comes to deal with our grossness. It's the first first thing he's got to do, right? And there's this really interesting story at the start of the gospel. Uh, Jesus in Capernaum, and uh, there's a crowd of people all around his house, and um, some men are desperate to get that paralyzed friend to see Jesus, so they climb on top of the roof. It's a Middle Eastern house, flat roofs, and so they dig the way through the roof. And I've often thought to myself, like, who paid for to fix that up? Was that like an insurance job? Well, you know, it's just these guys just dug a hole in my roof. Well, who's going to pay? Or maybe Jesus on his way out just went, take up your mats and walks and Leviosa roof. I don't know. No, he didn't do that sort of stuff. But what? anyway, an aside. These guys lower this man in. And what does Jesus do? Well, he sees their faith and he says, Son, your sins are forgiven. Your grossness. Uh... The other way to describe grossness is a, a great contemporary definition of sin by a guy called Francis Spufford, who's written a really interesting book on Christianity. He's an, he's an academic from the UK, and he defines sin as this, because sin is, oh, what is sin? Oh. It's grossness, but it's also, he says, sin is the human propensity to F up. He, he doesn't abbreviate it. He gives us the full four-letter word, which, you know, the human propensity to F up. That's us. In every way, in every shape, you give us the opportunity, give us long enough, we're going to F things up, right? That's sin. And it's gross. There's a grossness to our lives. Now, because of that, Jesus comes and the first thing he says to this guy is, your sins are forgiven. Your grossness, your propensity to really stuff things up. And of course, the leaders around him said, hang on, this is blasphemy. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And, of course, that's the whole point. Only God is powerful enough to actually deal with what's going on in our hearts. That's it. The Son of Man, fully human, also has the authority and the power of God to do what only God can do, which is to deal with the human heart. How so? Well, uh, immediately Jesus knew in his spirit what they were thinking in their hearts he knew that they didn't get it. This is confusing, right? So uh, he says, which is easier to, s- easier to say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. He got up, took his mat, walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, we've never seen anything like it. The Son of Man can deal with what is at the heart of everything that has gone wrong in this world. Your heart, my heart. That's what he's come to do. So I want to ask you, uh, this Christmas, what is your strategy for finding forgiveness? What is your strategy for dealing with your grossness? What is your strategy for dealing with your propensity to F things up. So it's time we go from Christmas into New Year's, and one strategy we often adopt is to say, oh, we can be better, New Year's resolutions, self-improvement, release the unlimited potential inside of you as you embrace a new diet and a new cleanse and a new detox and you do goal-setting and journaling and Pilates and yoga, and that's all on day one. And you will be a new you. Well, how many of you have ever tried that sort of stuff? I have. I'm a complete junkie for self-improvement, right? You, would, you wouldn't guess. you would guess. You wouldn't have a clue looking at me. But I am. It's just an example to see how little it works. Um, what you discover is all that stuff really just deals with epiphenomena, with surface stuff. None of it is, goes deep enough to actually... Deal with the stuff inside. And the other thing we do uh, is, is really, um, the way we deal with this is just denial. We pretend it's not there. We're, we're very good at this. Um, often Christmas lunches are an alcohol-fueled uh, orgy of denial of all the mess in human families. Aren't they? They can be. Not in your family, I'm sure, because I'm sure your family has no challenges, no stress, and everyone just gets along marvelously all the time. But one of the reasons why Christmas can be so stressful for people is, you know, when you deny all the muck inside of us, that works sort of okay for some of the time, but eventually all the muck that's in there comes out, and guess what? When you put a bunch of family members who don't normally see each other together in a high-stress environment like Christmas with alcohol and time, all the stuff that's in there tends to leak out. So denial doesn't really work. It, It, You know, this stuff leaks out. So what works? Well, the Son of Man has authority To forgive sin. It's wonderful news. It's wonderful news. So, how's he going to do it though? Because the problem with forgiveness, if you think about it, is forgiveness always costs someone something, doesn't it? You can't just forgive. There's always a price to be paid. Uh, I'll give you a trivial example. Imagine uh, you invited me around for your Christmas lunch And uh, and I accepted because it was better than my Christmas lunch, you know, because I could just see your family rather than mine, and that could be better, right? I don't know. So come for lunch, and uh, you bring out at lunch your great 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 grandmother's uh, beautiful antique, exquisite, super expensive, only use once a year crystal wine glasses, and they're 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 you know magnificent and super expensive and super precious, and so we're all having lunch. And, uh, uh, and I do what I normally do when I'm eating or when I'm talking is I talk with my hands and I'm talking and in the middle of lunch I'm making a point and suddenly poof, my glass goes and my glass knocks into your glass, knocks into your Suddenly there's an array of great, great, great grandmas, antique, beautiful crystal wine glasses shattered and there's red wine everywhere and it's a disaster, right? Now, how are we going to make that Right? Well, you've got two options. You can make me pay to make it right, can't you? You could say, Mark, you've got to go and find replacements for those glasses so I could spend the next five years of my life uh, scouring the internet for obscure auction sites, looking for exact replicas of these wine glasses, and eventually I might find them, and I, I'd have to fly to a far corner of, you know, what was Eastern Germany, and there in a, in a barn tucked away, unseen for, you know, 150 years, I'd find there the exact glass, and I'd have to fly back, and I'd give them to you, and you'd go, wow, oh, thank you so much, that's fantastic. That's one option. What's the other option? You could pay the price. You could say, Mark, it's okay. I forgive you. Which means you pay the emotional price of loss and grief. And if you want to replace them, you pay the economic price of going out and finding them and coughing up the dough to make it right. For there to be forgiveness and reconciliation, there's always a cost. So how does that work with God and us? Because if you think about it, in our world, we want someone to pay for all the breakages in the world, don't we? Don't we? I mean, the uh, Royal Commission into Institutional Responses to Child Sexual Abuse came out this week, their, their findings. Now, if you've ever read a document that once that makes you want someone to pay, that's the document, right? You read stuff like that and that level of grossness and evil and you say, someone's got to pay. Make them pay. We need some smiting, Lord. But the problem is, if if we have to pay, if we are the ones who get smote for our evil, well, there's not going to be anyone left, So what is God going to do? Well, instead of making us pay, the Son of Man is going to pay. He's going to pay for our forgiveness. And this is where we we see this in uh, in the turning point in Mark's gospel, in Mark chapter 10. Jesus is having an argument with his uh, disciples, a discussion about who's really great and what great leadership is. And he says this, Um, Don't don't try and be like the, the Gentile rulers. Don't try and be some great, big, pompous overlord. He says, Instead, whoever wants to become great amongst you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be a slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. What does the Son of Man do? The Son of Man says... I've come to touch your grossness, to heal you from the inside. How am I going to do it? Well, I will die for you so that the life and the wholeness and the beauty that I have will be yours and your grossness and your judgment will be mine. That's how God can forgive us without destroying us. How he can be just and judge the world and put an end to human evil, but not destroy us, because all his judgment on evil he absorbs into himself. The very heart of Christianity is this great exchange. Our rottenness, our grossness, our sin, honor Jesus, Son of Man comes to give his life for us, and his life, his glory, his beauty onto us in exchange. That's how God can forgive us. So let me ask you this. Are you trusting Jesus for your forgiveness? Like if you were to... if you were to shuffle off this mortal coil tonight in some tragic event and you tonight went and fronted up in front of God... And he said to you, you know, why should I let you into my perfect heaven? What would you say? Would you say to God, well, I've done my best. (laughs) Which is another way of saying, I've tried to, I've tried, uh, and I've tried to figure out my own forgiveness. I've tried to be good enough. Or would you say to God, I'm here Because Jesus died for me. I'm forgiven. I'm totally acceptable to you, Father, because your son, your son came into my life and came into my world and died for me. And and that's my confidence. That's my forgiveness. Do you know that? Is there, like, are you absolutely sitting here tonight 100% sure that if you were to front up to God, you would be fully, freely, finally forgiven for everything? complete assurance, no matter what you've done or no matter what you will do. You've really, you know, <laughs> that's Because that's what Jesus came to do. That's it, right? It's awesome. Do you know that? Or are you still trying to figure it out? For yourself, earn your way back. Make yourself acceptable to God. It'll never work. It'll never work. The grossness is too big. If If you choose to pay for your own grossness and propensity to F things up, it's not going to go well for you. The price is too high. Only Jesus can pay that for you. So that's what God does. As Son of Man, He touches our lives, He enters our world, and then He comes to die for us. And finally, the third thing the Son of Man does is He renews everything. He gives us hope. In Matthew chapter 19, Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on His glorious throne, uh, you will, there's a whole bunch of stuff in there, He says, you will inherit eternal life. This phrase, the renewal of all things, is a wonderful Hebrew phrase that is still very significant in Judaism today. And the Hebrew is this little phrase, tikkun haolam, the renewal of all things. And what it says is that the Son of Man is going to come back not to, not to wash the slate clean and start again, not to pull the plug on your life and on my life, but to make everything new. So the hope we have, the hope we have is this. You imagine the most beautiful, exquisite experiences of your life. Imagine the very best things that this world has to offer, right? Whatever it is, like the best thing that's ever, 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 ever happened to you. Now, imagine that extended out in your experience for uh, forever and magnified in intensity so that it gets more and more and more wonderful because our capacity for joy will be infinite, like God's, and we'll be in a renewed world where the only thing that will come across into this renewed creation, the only things will be things that are beautiful and true and just and good. And you've got this, you imagine the best thing you've ever had, and it just keeps getting better and better and better, and it's completely untouched by anything that wrecks our good experiences now. You know? Like time. Here's the problem with every good experience, this side of the tikkun haolam, of the renewal of all things. The problem is even the very best things are gone like that. You blink and a decade of your life is gone. You blink again and it's almost all done. So the renewal of all things means that the beauty and the truth and the justice and the experiences are untouched by time. They're untouched by selfishness. They're untouched by loss. They're untouched by grief. It's just everything that is wonderful forever and raised to the next level with nothing to diminish or detract. And the Son of Man has come to give us that hope and to bring us into that world. Isn't that great? That's a world worth living for, right? That's a future that is worth giving your life to. Is that your future? Let's pray. Lord God, thank you that you came into our world as the Son of Man to forgive our sins, to die for us, and then to renew all of reality. And I pray for each and every one of us in this room tonight. And all of, us, all of us listening online, that right now you will work in our hearts by your Holy Spirit. That we will, we will grasp this beautiful, wonderful Son of Man for ourselves. And all that he's done for us and all that he will do for us. Help us to trust him with everything forever and for always. Amen.